If you're on any kind of social media, I am sure you've seen the hashtag Me Too. Me Too. Me Too. The hashtag of the day, which is yeah. Me Too. The very popular hashtag, balance ton porc, to rat out your pig. Everybody has seen Me Too, right? Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, assistant editor at Spiked. And this week, we're looking at the ongoing sexual harassment panic. We start with Luke Gittos and Joanna Williams getting to grips with the so-called sex minster scandal and Kneegate and end with a very special guest, Lionel Shriver's thoughts on Me Too and Harvey Weinstein. Following the Harvey Weinstein expose and the Me Too campaign, the sexual harassment panic has hit Westminster. It all seemingly began with Kneegate, the name given to the fact that Michael Fallon touched radio host Julia Hartley Brewer's knee many years ago and was rebuffed. Despite Hartley Brewer's protests, Fallon has since stepped down from his role as Defence Secretary as a consequence of this flirtation coming to light. Following this, a list was circulated and on it, MPs were accused of being handsy, having affairs, even making inappropriate comments. And all of this was talked about in the same breath as a serious allegation of rape made by Labour activist Bex Bailey. So, what to make of all of this? Well, to talk it over, I spoke to Spiked's law editor Luke Gittos, the author of Why Rape Culture is a Dangerous Myth, from Steubenville to Chad Evans, and Joanna Williams, Spiked's education editor, who has a new book out called Women vs. Feminism, Why We All Need Liberating from the Gender Wars. Hello, Joanna, and Luke, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. No problem. Hello. Uh, Luke, can we go to you first? Because, I mean, these Westminster allegations, it's, it's hard to get your head around them. There seems to be new ones coming up every day. But as of yet, am I right in thinking that no one has been proven guilty yet, even though some people have uh, apologised? Uh, there are investigations underway, but is it important to remind people that actually no... Uh, cases have been closed in relation to these allegations? Well, I think it's important to start with recognising that in many of these allegations, they don't even amount to allegations of anything criminal. I mean, that the spreadsheet that was published by Guido Fawkes, I think it looks like an elaborate attempt at a joke more than anything else. Um, A lot of that spreadsheet contains completely unspecific, unspecified allegations of behaviour which, on the face of it, appear completely normal. So, some of it relates to um, unwanted advances. I mean, who knows what that means? Um, other people are accused of uh, inappropriate behaviour while drunk. All of this is not criminal behaviour. It's basically identifying moments of indiscretion or lapses of judgment. I mean, to even talk about being innocent until proven guilty suggests that there is something criminal being alleged. And in many cases, that's simply not the case. Now, there are exceptions to that, um, and you know some of the allegations are extremely serious. The allegation emerging from Bex Bailey being one of them, you know, moving right from completely non-criminal everyday behavior right up to allegations of very, very serious sexual violence. And I think it becomes everything has become very, very confused. So I think to even talk about innocent till proven guilty, I mean, in some circumstances, that's clearly appropriate, as in the Bex Bailey case, 
In other cases, it's just not even criminal behaviour being talked about. And Joanna, do you get worried about what this means for serious cases getting lumped in with things like, I mean, Luke's just given us a few examples, but if I give, could give a few more. Someone is on this spreadsheet for having an affair. Someone is on called Guy Copperfield. Someone's called Hands in. One of the list is about someone's sexual preference in relation to perfume. I mean, obviously, these are trivial things. But what happens when you lump them in with something serious like an allegation of sexual assault or rape? Well, I think one of the problems is that it really trivialises some of the more serious crimes that are being discussed. So you could see the news on Wednesday morning, you saw the case against Michael Fallon that he placed his hand on someone's knee, a crime for which I wasn't even a victim (laughs) because Julia Hartley Brewer, the person who had her knee touched, came out very robustly and said that she wasn't. Considering this to be sexual harassment in any way, and she dealt with it there and then in no uncertain terms, so you're taking bizarre incidents like that, and then you're conflating them with really serious allegations that need to be tried in courts of law, not on courts of social media. And I think it's hugely problematic to conflate all these different issues. And as far as I can see, the only purpose in conflating all these different things, is, as Luke very accurately points out, you know, some, some most of which are not crimes in any definition of the word, uh, conflating all of these things, the, the purpose of it just seems to be to allow all women to present themselves as victims of sexual harassment who hasn't overheard a joke or fleetingly had their knee touched at some point in time we can all label ourselves as victims we can all raise our hands and say me too to these kind of things but why would you want to do that why why is it seen as being in the best interest of women to um, put this label of victim on themselves it's really disgusting well I mean on that point Joanna because lots of people are speaking out in defense of this. We should probably explain Me Too is the social media phenomenon which has turned into a kind of political campaign of sorts to supposedly raise awareness about sexual harassment. If you were to go by what's happening on Twitter, it would seem that lots and lots of women have experienced sexual harassment. Is there any truth to that? I mean, is there any merit in it being some kind of a eye-opening thing, do you think? I think it's something that's likely to do far more harm to women in the long term um, than it is good. I mean, I think it's very spurious what it's actually raising awareness of. Like, say, if women have got uh, serious and specific accusations, they need to be taking those accusations to the police, not to Twitter. Uh, but the the real danger is that, well, as we've already said, it, it blurs all kinds of different behaviours together, and it creates this overwhelming sense that all women are, are victims, which, on the one hand, just flies in the face of reality nowadays, Uh, The workplace has never been better for women and women are dominating more of the professions than ever before. And I think what's really interesting with the whole Westminster sex panic is that actually at the last election, more female MPs were returned than at any other point in history. And I think this is something that we need to be celebrating. We need to be sending out the message to young women nowadays that a career in politics is not only possible, but something that's uh, potentially an exciting profession to be involved in. 
Whereas instead, the message is going out that working in politics or in any walk of life, so it seems kind of a living hell for women, that it's a constant barrage of abuse and harassment. Luke, is there a danger in this or is there an underlying current of kind of misanthropy? And that idea kind of really struck me when I saw the news today that the... um, Green co-leader Caroline Lucas has suggested that all MPs should go through consent classes and consent training. Is there a is there a kind of statement underlying all of this that the presupposition that all men are potential rapists and that in order to fix this, certainly in Westminster, we have to teach all the MPs not to rape? I think there is certainly a, another kind of sort of unforgiveness. Um, a kind of brutality to this, which is effectively that if someone makes a mistake or a drunken pass at someone or uh, makes a bit of an idiot of themselves, that we should hold them up as someone evil and wicked and, irre- and, and unredeemed. That's what I think happened with with respect of Mr. Fallon. You know, you had an incident, uh, too, too much to call it an incident. He made a pass at someone in 2002. He's obviously quite clumsy at it got told where to go and the impulse today is not to look back on that and say well it wasn't you know treat it like any innocent uh, misgiving it's to sort of hold it up as a, as an example of how he abused his power this is one of the phrases that we've seen coming out time and time again it's a, the the abuse of power i mean but there is a, there is something to say that women you know women shouldn't have to go to work and have to put up with lechy old men harassing them all the time no one is arguing that what we are saying is that we need to treat all of these as uh, what they are, which is, uh, you know, 95% of the time this is not harassing behaviour. It's indiscretions and, and lapses of judgment. And I think, firstly, um, Joanna's right to say that we need to show women that th- these aren't barriers to them being included in the workplace. And, and more importantly, we should also recognise that these things can be worked out by people themselves and can be worked out in private one of the problems we're facing now is that everything has to be made public. Everything has to be played out in the public realm. People have to be held up for judgment about about these minor lapses of judgment. And I just think this public orientation of the whole thing only makes things worse. I think it makes it imbues events with more significance than they deserve. And I think it's this public orientation of things which which weighs it with so much significance when when really these incidents do not deserve significance. And does it worry you, I'm not just asking you this, Luke, because you're a man, but in terms of, you kind of wonder how men feel about this, actually, because do you think that there is a, this is throwing a kind of barrier, an extra unnecessary barrier in between kind of relationships? Because you imagine, if I can think of the number of um, times that someone has come on to me and it has been technically unwanted conduct, but it's, you know, turned into a great relationship do do you think that there's something in kind of actually frightening people about taking a risk and you know being intimate falling in love and taking that first step in a relationship because somewhere in the future it could be misremembered as harassment i think there's a real risk of that so one of the yougov polls we saw coming out recently uh, suggested that younger people are far more likely to interpret certain signals as sexual harassment so consistently whether it be uh, winking uh, or having unwanted touching or having unwanted advances, young people are far more likely today to view that as sexual harassment than, than, than the older generation. I think that 
is a recipe for problems because if young people are encouraged to see more of these interactions as, as potentially violent or, or forms of harassment, um, the whole process is going to become a lot more ridden with anxiety than it already is. I mean, I don't think we need to gender it, actually. I don't think that men face any specific uh, problems in this. I think it's, it, it harms the relationship between the genders and between the sexes, and that's what we need to focus on. I also think that there will be a whole barrage of people out there who see the Westminster stuff as a little bit mad and will continue to get on with life as normal and will continue to rub along and will continue to um, do all the things that are complained of against these MPs. You know, people will continue to go out, get drunk, hit on each other, make an idiot of themselves, kiss each other when one of them doesn't want to. All of this stuff will continue to happen. But the more that this message gets out that certain kinds of behaviour are inherently harassing or violent, the more pervasive it becomes, the more we see more of our everyday interactions as violent, the less able we are to live independently with one another. And that's where this this kind of what is perhaps a bit of a mad story about, about politics and transparency in Westminster translate into a very pervasive and, 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 and corrosive part of, of public life. And I think that's when it becomes uh, more, more problematic. I think, uh, you know, the fact is that whether we like it or not, we spend a great deal of our lives at work. And I was looking at some statistics recently that suggested, I think it's about a third of people actually meet their partner uh, in the workplace. And I think the sexual harassment panic that we're in the middle of at the moment lends itself to more regulation of the working environment. And I think that has got to be detrimental for both men and women for a lot of the reasons that Luke has suggested. Uh, you know, this, this is uh, the idea that you go and spend eight hours a day somewhere where uh, jokes are off limits, where you need to ask for a special permission slip before you engage in a minor flirtation. You know, where that kind of workplace banter, those informal meetings between men and women where you go might go for a drink or go for a coffee after work. And that's where promotion opportunities are often discussed, where networking takes place. And the idea that all of this becomes so much more regulated and controlled, um, I just think not only is it to, to the detriment of men and women, but it kind of just makes the workplace a much more dull <laughs> and uh, horrible place for us all to spend our lives in for eight hours a day. Well, finally then, Joanna, if I can just end with you, it's actually an unpopular position to take with the kind of things that you two have been saying. Everyone's talking about it being brave speaking out and that saying Me Too is very brave and obviously there's some truth in that, but it strikes me that it's more brave at the moment to actually say, hang on, uh, you know, challenge the kind of panic that's going on. Why do you think it's really important to stick our neck out and say enough is enough, stop the Westminster panic? One thing that's really surprised me is that all the criticism, and I mean virtually all of the criticism that I've received from the stance that I've taken and has actually been from men who have uh, taken the time and effort to explain to me that I'm not doing feminism properly and that don't I realise women really are victims and women really do need more protections and um, that sexual harassment is a terrible problem for women. And virtually without exception, women have contacted me to say, thank you for saying this. We don't see ourselves as victims. We find this debate patronising and really nauseating that women are being portrayed in this way. And like I said earlier, you know, the message I would want to send to young women nowadays is there's so many opportunities. Go out there, take the workplace by storm. And my real fear is that it's worry about sexual harassment 
that's now holding young women back uh, far more than the reality of sexual harassment being likely to take place. That was Joanna Williams and Luke Gittos on the Westminster sex scandal. Now for our final guest. Author and commentator Lionel Shriver is no stranger to controversy. This week in her piece for The Spectator, she wrote, Am I the only one to find the me-tooing over Harvey Weinstein a little creepy? Well, no, she isn't. I and many other women have been feeling that too. So, are we going to go back to the days of being unhealthily suspicious of any unplanned interaction between the sexes? What's the consequence of this moral panic? Are we headed towards a safe and sanitised world in which sex is something to be feared? Lionel is a busy woman, but we caught up at a cafe in central London to talk more. Lionel, thanks for coming here to meet me today. Let's start by getting to grips with this Harvey Weinstein thing, because it started off, as obviously, as an expose. Do you think that it's become bigger than him? Has it turned into a moral panic? Well, it's certainly become a bandwagon, and I'm, com- I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't, um, I don't like mob rule, <laughs> and I feel that we're losing our uh, discrimination. We're losing all sense of proportion. And furthermore, it, you know, I grant the point that a lot of women have experienced not being believed when they do uh, mention that they've been harassed or, or even assaulted, but I feel that we have swung the opposite direction, and now we believe everything. And, you know, that's just not a, a, a just world. It's not fair. Uh, there are too many dubious characters out there to believe it absolutely every accusation that anyone makes and you know mixed in with a, a, a lot of unsubstantiated and and questionable claims are some very serious ones and important and on behalf of the women who have been grievously injured and and, and insulted and, and and sometimes physically invaded in a violent manner against their will to, to throw uh, would-be flirtatious remarks into the mix is is demeaning to those women who have truly been insulted and injured. And if, you know, if I were the victim of sexual assault, I would resent the clamor because I would feel that my voice was getting lost. Well, you've written an article in The Spectator this week about, you know, defending the potential amusement and enjoyment of banter, the importance of flirtation, the um, the good side of it. Why do you think there's an attack on that? Do you think that banter is in danger? I do. It's, it's, this is not a very good time to stick up for the pleasures of flirtation. Emphasis, by the way, on mutual flirtation and not on somebody making uh, a pest of himself. I do think that we have scared the bejesus out of men in general and um, maybe some of that is good you know to um, put them on notice that any behavior is not going to be acceptable anymore and and, um, they can't get away with some of the stuff that they used to that's fine but I hate the idea of making everyone so frightened that we we behave with killing rectitude with each other in in a way that destroys all the fun, you know? And the truth is that sex is a dance, and it it, it occurs on many different levels and not just in the bedroom. 
um, it has to start somewhere. And it often starts with a kind of verbal flirtation, a little look or a, a usage of a word in a, with a double entendre or just something to begin introduction of, of sexual content between two people. And you know, often it doesn't go anywhere. You know, one, one of the things that I was sticking up for is just flirtation for its own sake, which is just fun. It's, it's not going to materialize into anything physical. It's often just banterish conversation, and it doesn't hurt anybody. And I, I worry that uh, we're killing that. What do you think this all means for women? I mean, are we all frightened mouses, scared of, for example, semi-disabled old men like Max Stafford Clark or um, even someone like Weinstein? Are we incapable of brushing off remarks? Are we, you know, scared of even the off-colour joke? What's going on there? What does that say about women? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a, a form of self-humiliation. I think to pretend that that's intimidating and capable of making you feel hopelessly dirty and besmirched and, you know, you went home cowering and cried yourself to sleep because of one, you know, probably generationally dictated remark. You know, I think he said that in the earlier days he'd be up upper like a rat, up a drain pipe. Which... <laughs> I don't know. I never heard that expression before. I thought it was pretty funny. I can't imagine hearing that and, and being seriously aggrieved. I would be amused. I would make a note of the expression and its dated feeling. Um, if this is a man in a wheelchair, I wouldn't feel physically threatened. I, I don't believe that, that women have who complained about this sort of thing, including George H.W. Bush. I don't think they, they, they genuinely feel physically threatened and any suggestion that they are they, there's a feeling of I, I, of opportunism of making a great deal over over something that might be easily dismissed or or found a little pathetic I mean I think George HW is not in very good shape I think he's going senile and that often entails uh, the loss of inhibition so that's just sad. That's, that's not horrifying. It's just a little pathetic, a little, oh, God. Um, and I think that we, we, you know, for women to get on their high horse and find what are really these small misbehaviors, an absolute outrage that is utterly traumatizing, it doesn't, it doesn't make us look good. I believe we're losing a sense of proportion in, about sex in general. I mean, look at what happened with the historical sex abuse scandals. Ever since Jimmy Savile, the, the pedophilia paranoia has gone through the roof. And it, the, it, it parallels exactly the same phenomenon whereby anyone who makes a, 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 an accusation is believed, whereas in the past they were not. Now, there has to be a, a medium and fair course where we take into consideration who's saying what and perhaps for, for what reason. And we return to the point of innocent until proven guilty. And we've lost that. Do you think we're in danger of denigrating relationships between people? Are we in danger of policing every single action? You know, you know 
larger theater, I'm concerned that we are starting to criminalize sexual desire. That that we're starting to find it disgusting in an almost religious way, which is which is regressive. You know, everything that my generation tried to accomplish was to free us up from the neuroses and and the kind of disgust that I got from my own mother in relation to my sexuality. She found it repulsive. So can't we get beyond that? We're going back to that. We're, we're back to, we're starting to find sex repulsive. You know, a lot of this, um, uh, or at least some of these accusations uh, about men who made remarks or just put a hand on the knee. I mean, that's, in my day, that was called making a pass. And you, you were free to rebuff it. And it was a little bit of a compliment. Now, if it was from somebody that you weren't interested in, it might have had a slightly creepy feeling because it's like, I don't want to go there. You don't interest me in that way. And there were ways of making that clear. And it, you know, when, when the communication was working, it, didn't, it did not go any farther. Um, that's part of the dance. But you know, somebody has to make a move. And it's still the case that women, for the most part, are not going to. And if, if we don't allow people to initiate, in the small way, a, a, an expression of interest, then the a human race will cease to reproduce. You've been listening to the Spike podcast. To get your daily dose of Spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed, and if you'd like to help Spiked continue to thrive, be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.